find Romans in the New Testament right after the book of Acts. So Romans chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 16. If you've been with us in our study, we have talked about how the human instrument to write the book of Romans is Paul the Apostle. And he is writing to the Christians in the city of Rome, which is the capital of the Roman Empire. And in his opening statements to them, he says, I'm ready to come to Rome to preach the gospel. And of course, at this time, he had never been to the city of Rome. He desired to go to them, but he was hindered at this time, as he writes. And he says, but I am going to come to you, ready to preach the gospel in Rome. He would eventually get to Rome as a prisoner uh, of Rome. He didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But about about three years later, he would come to Rome where he's under house arrest. And as he's writing to the Christians there, he gives the wonderful theme of the book of Romans in verses 16 and 17 of this uh, first chapter that we read. And you know the verses, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the Bible just read, the Bible just read, the Bible just read, by faith. And then Paul begins to, after that verse that we just read, he begins to write about this gospel that has the power to save, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. He tells us the truth of, of what is declared by the Lord, that the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. In other words, God is going to judge all sin, all iniquity, all transgression, ungodliness, unrighteousness. And as Paul is putting, you know, pen to paper here, writing from the city of Corinth, and the city of Corinth was a city that was known for his sin, he begins to give us truth concerning the state of man. That it's not a pretty picture. Uh, here's the truth. It's not that we are all good and we have good in us. It's not that we're all children of God and we're all going to end up in heaven together. Rather is we are lost. We are in a lost state. We're all sinners. And we have need of the gospel of Christ that has the power for salvation. And as we read chapter 1, continuing through that chapter, that there is man's refusal to acknowledge and glorify God, which is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, which leads then to a spiritual downward path, suppressing the truth of God's revelation of himself, leading to spiritual idolatry, spiritual stupidity, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And creation itself all around us testifies of the fact that there is a creator. And man is without excuse. Man begins to then worship God according to his own image of God, changing the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, worshiping worthless things, and then that leads to moral depravity and perversity, man wanting to fulfill their lusts. And last time, as we moved into chapter 2, Paul continuing to tell us about the state of mankind. 
And so to the religious, self-righteous person that might read that all in chapter one about the unrighteous, the one who, who follows after their own lust, they might look at that individual or those people and say, well, of course they are sinners. They deserve the wrath of God. They deserve, you know, to be declared guilty. And, but me, I'm a self-righteous moralist. I can stand before God in my own righteousness. Now, Paul is dealing with them as we began to see last week. You might remember that story of John chapter 8, that it was Jesus teaching at the temple. And as he's there teaching, a lot of people are around. It was the religious leaders wanting to trap him, accuse him. So they bring this woman that they throw down in front of Jesus, a woman that they said was caught in the very act of adultery. We caught her in the very act. The law of Moses says that she is to be stoned. But what do you say, Rabbi? What do you say, teacher? And initially, Jesus, when they did that, he, he acted like he didn't hear them. He's writing with his finger on the ground there. We don't know what it was that he was writing. And they kept pressing him. What do you say? She's to be stoned. We have rocks in her hands ready to stone her. We want to hear from you. And then Jesus would stand up, of course, and he would say to them, that you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And you know the story how they began to drop their rocks one at a time and they would leave. And then that woman was there standing before Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, we're thy accusers. Does anyone condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Go in peace and sin no more. You see, to the one that, that loves to throw rocks, ready to throw rocks at others, you who are self-righteous, you who judge another, you need to understand this. When it comes to the state of man, when it comes to your state, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are guilty as well. So not only are the unrighteous guilty, but the self-righteous. Because he too has not stood up or measured up to God's standard, which is perfection. And Paul is writing to us, I think, very powerfully and truthfully. He, he is arguing very persuasively. Of course, inspired by the Spirit of God that man all of mankind has need to be saved, every single one of us. We're all guilty before God, and God's judgment will come on that day, verse 16, where we left off. Let's read it again in Romans chapter 2, that when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God sees the depth of every one of our hearts, everything that we have ever thought, everything that we've ever said, everything that we've ever done. And maybe no one else saw it or knows about it, but God does. And on that judgment day, if you stand before God, trying to be righteous in your own merit and your own religiousness and piety or whatever it may be, that on that judgment day, it will all be open for everyone to see. And, and nothing is hidden from the Lord. And then that self-righteous, moral person that thought that they could enter into heaven on their own morality and righteousness that they too are going to find out that they fall short. The problem with us is this, that we like to look outwardly. We like to compare ourselves to others. Hey, I'm more righteous than that person. 
I'm more righteous than them. Of course, look at their life. They're just full of sin, walking in sin. Uh, I'm a good person. Uh, I've done some good things in life. And we look outwardly comparing ourselves to others when we need to be looking upwardly and we need to know that God's standard for us to be righteous is that we need to be perfect in everything that we said, everything that we did, every, every thought that we thought, every minute of our lives, and none of us can measure up to that standard. We need to measure up to Jesus Christ, the only one who ever walked this earth that lived a perfect life. And we fall short. So that's what Paul, he's addressing them, trying to get them to understand. You who judge another for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. So let's continue in verse 17 of the chapter. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, be instructed out of the law. In the day of judgment, Paul has been writing in this chapter, the Gentile who doesn't have the law, they will be judged by the conscience that he or she has either honored or violated. And the Jew will be judged by the law that has been entrusted uh, to them. And what would happen is the Jews would boast that, hey, we have the law. We're the covenant people. We know the things that are excellent. And as they boasted about it, they thought that that's what brought them salvation. They thought because they had the law that they would have salvation. And because they were circumcised, even as we're going to see, Paul is going to begin to address that. And you're confident, verse 19, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, verse 20, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. So the Jews, the Hebrews, prided themselves in being God's covenant people. They had the law. They thought because they did have the law of God, they had the ordinances and, and the feasts and all of that, that they were completely justified. And Paul, as you might recall last week, as we read in verse 13 of the chapter, that he says it is those who do the law that are justified, not just those who hear the law, but it is those who do the law. In other words, that you do it perfectly that you keep completely all the commandments and precepts and truths of the Old Testament in your thoughts. And, and it is the doer of the law that justifies you before God. But the problem is, is none of us can do that. None of us can keep the law. We're all lawbreakers. That's why the law was given, as Paul would write in the book of Galatians. It is to show us that we're guilty. So here, as he continues writing, he says that you dishonor God through the breaking of the law. Now, as he's making this point about you have the law, you boast in the law, do you keep the law is what he asks. You who may be quick to point out others that they break the law, such as those religious leaders in John chapter 8, bringing that woman before Jesus. But do you allow, and this is where we can apply it in our own lives, do you allow God to show you and me how we break the law? You preach that a man shall not steal. 
but do you steal? Now, one of the things that we know that's true for our culture and for our society is theft is a huge problem, isn't it? We spend billions upon billions of dollars to secure our homes, to secure our businesses. And it, it, it is such a, uh, a terrible experience to have when somebody breaks into your home and steals things. Um, when somebody breaks into your business, and we hear it in the news all the time, lately down in the Denver area of, you know, breaking the glass and, and break and grab, and, and businesses have been dealing with all of that. And, and so we spend all this time and effort trying to make our homes, trying to make our lives secure. We do it here at the church. We've had people try to break into the church and pry open the back door. And one of the things that um, law enforcement have cautioned us about is there are those, there was for a little while, there was a rash of, of stealing at churches when the service was going on. While they're having service, that somebody would sneak up in the offices and break in and then begin to steal whatever they could, computers or money or whatever they could lay their hands on. So we have security here. We have to warn people, particularly like Wednesday nights, now that it's dark, hey, that don't leave anything in your cars because it's very easy for somebody to come and smash and grab if they see a purse in your car or see phones or, or a backpack or anything like that. We've had people break into the shed here, you know, to steal a leaf blower. And I think really, you have to break into a church to steal a leaf blower. And it's annoying and it's irritating. Just a month ago, and one of the big things that we have to worry about is what? Identity theft, right? Constantly worrying. We have to check our accounts and, and all of this, worrying about identity theft. A month ago, somebody got a hold of the one church credit card that we have that we can order things online and, and we, we use it and we pay it off every month but they got a hold of our number and they're having breakfast at IHOP and filling up with gas out in California so you got to make the call you got to contest the charges you know how that's like and you got to stop the card and then you got to wait for a new one to come and and it's just a real hassle to go through so it's, it's annoying when we have to go through those things. And, and, and here he's saying to them, he's making a point. You, you teach, you know, a man not to steal, but do you steal? You see, in the book of Malachi, the Lord would say to his people that you have stolen from me. You have robbed me. And I said, when did we steal from you? We didn't steal from you. He said, in the tithe, in the first fruits. And your sacrifices that you bring to me, you're bringing the worst of the animals. And we can really allow the Lord to, to look at our hearts and, Lord, do I steal from you? Do, a, do I hold back that which really belongs to you? Am I giving you the leftovers of my life? Am I not giving you the first fruits? And see, that's the point that Paul is making here. He says, do not commit adultery, but as we know that Paul's touching on what Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, as he would say, it's not just the outward action, but the inward attitude, that if you lust after another in your heart, then you're guilty of adultery. If you have anger and hate your brother without a cause, you're guilty of murder. And I think that the two biggest struggles that men have are anger and lust. If you have it in your heart, you're guilty. 
Let the Lord examine your hearts. You're guilty of idols, as he says. Have you robbed temples? And of course, on Wednesday night going through Isaiah, we've seen the Lord pleading with his people, turn away from your idol worship, turn to me. I am God. There is none other. Those idols that you worship, it's foolish. They cannot help you. They are worthless. You cut a piece of wood, and half of it you use to build a fire to warm yourself and to cook with. The other half you make an image, and you bow down to it. You put it on a cart. It can't do any good. It cannot hear. It cannot see. It cannot speak at all. It will not help you, and it didn't help them, those idols. And you see, we can think, well, I'd never have, you know, something made out of metal or wood, a little altar in my house and bow down to that idol. But there's all kinds of things. I think that there's more idols today than ever before. Anything that is a priority over your devotion to the Lord. Anything that you turn to and you look to for help that motivates you in life. The thing that you really have a heart for that has priority over the Lord and your devotion to the Lord, that is an idol. And all of us have to be careful because they can be things, they can be someone, they can be ourselves. For me, I have to be careful that I don't allow ministry to be an idol because there's a real fine line there. I want people to come to Christ. I want people to know him, the gospel. I want to work hard for the Lord, but I never want ministry to be an idol to be over my devotion to the Lord and to know him and to walk with him. So here he, he's talking about these things. Speaking of idols, it was interesting that I was reading in the book of Judges that in uh, the book of Judges that the young adults are going through that Pastor Jesse is teaching, the whole theme of the book of Judges is what? They did what was right in their own eyes. And it goes, Judges, from bad to worse. And in chapter 18, the, the tribe of Dan that had their inheritance, they decided, we don't like it here. We're going to move up north. And as they're going up north, there's a whole story of, of, of Micah that had this Levite that he met that had all these idols. And so they, they pass by Micah's house. And they say to the Levite, hey, come with us. Bring the idols. You know, it's better that you serve us. You have a whole bunch of people that you can be the religious leader rather than just one guy. And so they take all the idols. They're going up north to tell Dan up in that area and the northern part of the country. And all of a sudden, Micah comes home and he realizes my idols are gone. And so he runs them down and he says, you've stolen my gods. And I think, what good is a god if it can be stolen? You know, the foolishness of idol worship. And here Paul says, you're dishonoring God through the breaking of the law. It was in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David had sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery and committed murder. He tried to hide it. Nathan comes to him and says, David, we got a problem. There's a guy in the kingdom. He's a rich man, very wealthy, has lots of herds of animals, sheep. He had a guest come, and instead of going out to his own flock and taking one of those sheep and, and using it to feed his guest, he goes to a poor man's house down the road, and he has one little lamb, and he takes that lamb that was a pet to the guy, and he took it and killed it and fed it to his guests. And David heard that. He was furious. He begins pointing the finger and he's there saying, surely in his anger, that man must die. And it was Nathan that looked at David and said, David, you're the man. You're so quick to condemn. Wanting to put that guy to death. You're the man, David. You stole Uriah's wife. 
you killed Uriah. And, and the Lord began to speak to David. David, I gave you the kingdom. I brought you out of the sheepfold. If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And Nathan said, you have caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And when David heard that, that must have broke David's heart because he was a man after God's own heart. And David knew that he was guilty. And he repented. You see, that's the reason why we're proclaimers of grace. Because if I set myself up as being so righteous and I am so holy and I am great spiritually and look at me, you're going to end up failing. And you're setting yourself up for a huge fall. Because none of us can live perfectly righteous. None of us can keep God's standard. And in my life, I don't want to misrepresent God and cause others to laugh at Christianity or be cynical or negative towards God because they watch me in my witness, in my arrogance or my haughtiness, or they watch me in my witness. My behavior is not what it should be. I live no different than the world. It grieves me. That when I'm trying to minister to somebody, and, and I know you have the same frustration, when they say, why should I become a Christian? I had a family member that was a Christian. They said they were, or a neighbor, or you know, somebody at school that I went with or worked with, and they live no different than what I do. What comes out of their mouths? They like to go out and party. Uh, what they're involved in, they love to gossip. Why should I become a Christian? So a question for all of us to consider as we go through this this morning. To consider in the honesty of our hearts, how's your witness? How's your witness? Do you boast being a Christian and yet your conduct and speech and behavior is not what it should be? Again, I don't think anybody's looking for us to be perfect. But I pray, Lord, please, I don't want to cause others to blaspheme your name because of the way that I live or my conduct, my behavior, my speech, my faith, my purity... And the way did I live my life? But Lord, may they see something of you in my life and in my heart. What's coming from my mouth. How it is that I live my life. And that's what Paul's taught us touching on. He continues in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So again, the Hebrews, they would boast that they were circumcised. Now remember that circumcision was, first of all, it was an identification of God's covenant people. It was to be an outward sign of an inward reality. So Jews were marked. It was an outward way. There was a cutting away of the foreskin, a cutting away of the flesh that was to take place in every male child born on the eighth day according to Genesis chapter 17. But what happened over time is they thought just because they had the outward mark of circumcision that they were justified. Uh, hey, you know, uh, I'm circumcised. Uh, I'm a descendant of Aaron. I'm of the covenant people. 
I am proven. I am validated because I was cut on the eighth day. Barclay, uh, the great commentator, he says concerning this portion of scripture that he, he talks about how in Paul's day that there are some rabbis that taught that Abraham, that he actually sat at the entrance of hell and made sure that none of his circumcised descendants went there. In Matthew chapter 3, many of you, you know the, the text, when John the Baptist was out at the Jordan out there in the wilderness and he was baptizing. It tells us that all of Israel came out to see him. They were being baptized, tax collectors, you know, soldiers even, uh, because he addresses them. And it was a baptism of repentance. Well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out to check this man of the wilderness. And they're asking him, hey, are you the Messiah? And he said, no. Are you Elijah, the forerunner, uh, you know, that one who is to come, that is, before the, the coming of the Lord, as talked about in Malachi? No, I'm not Elijah, but I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. And as those religious leaders came out questioning John and seeing what was going on, and they came out with their long robes and all their religiousness and the flactories on their foreheads and on their wrists and their noses up in the air. And it was John that began to address them. And I'll read it to you from Matthew chapter 3. As they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Not a very warm welcome, is it? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He was saying, quit thinking that God owes you a favor. You think because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, and you're physically circumcised that you're saved? There needs to be true repentance, and Paul will talk about that as we continue here in the book of Romans. And of course, in John chapter 8, after that incident with that woman there at the temple, that the religious leaders came against Jesus, began to, to challenge his authority, his witness, and they would boast. They would say that, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but if you were Abraham's children, you would do the work of Abraham. Which was what? Believe on the name of Jesus. You see, they came to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, believe on him whom he was sent. Believe on me, in other words. And as you go through the book of Galatians, Paul showed that it's not circumcision that justifies a man, but it is faith. And just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, then circumcision came later. Chapter 17 of Genesis. And Paul writes, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are really sons of Abraham. You want to be a true descendant that is the children of Abraham? Be one of faith that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to make that case when we get into chapter 4 of the book of Romans. As you read the Old Testament scriptures, God defines how the illustration of circumcision was intended to work. In Ezekiel 44, the Lord talked about those who were uncircumcised in heart. In Jeremiah chapter 4, the Lord says, Circumcise yourself to me. Take away the foreskins of your heart. 
telling them once again to have a heart for God. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 12, Moses talked about being uncircumcised of lips. And then again in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, for you note takers, the prophet speaks of the circumcision of the ears. We are to have hearts and lips and ears that are circumcised to the Lord. That is a heart that is tender towards the Lord. Lips that are speaking the praises and the grace of the Lord. And then ears that are sensitive to hearing the things of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. And that is what circumcision really was to be about. And we saw that throughout their history, oftentimes, they were circumcised of the flesh outwardly, but not of the heart internally. In Joshua chapter 5, the people of God finally, finally crossed the Jordan River. They came into the promised land after 40 years of being out in the wilderness. And the Lord said, Joshua, before you take on Jericho and have victory, before you enjoy the milk and the honey, Joshua, you need to circumcise all those who have come out of Egypt there at Gilgad. Pretty amazing that that new generation coming into the promised land, they had not been circumcised. But before you do battle against Jericho, if you want to experience the milk and the honey that the Lord has for you, there needs to be a cutting away of the flesh, a doing away of the flesh. You need to be circumcised of heart and of the lips and of the ears. And that's something that is true for you and for me. How is it that you feel towards the Lord? Do you have a heart for the Lord or do you have a heart for the world? We need to be circumcised in our speech. What comes out of our mouths? Jesus said what comes out of our mouths shows the abundance of the heart. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We need to be sensitive to what we are hearing. Are you sensitive to hearing the things of God or do you listen to and take in and desire to take in that of the world which will pollute? There needs to be a doing away of the flesh before you can have victory in the spirit and that is true for all of us. And that principle became lost in the community of the super religious and, and pious. They boasted in their circumcision physically. They, though, were hardened in their heart to the Lord in reality. They were fleshly. And this is very important for us to consider this. And the Lord is making a very important point concerning outward signs and religion because Christians, we can do the same thing that they did 2,000 years ago. People say to me all the time, I've been baptized. I've gone through confirmation. I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and dads were Christians. I, I, I took a communion. I worshiped on a certain day, and that's all fine and dandy. But if it has not touched your heart, it really means nothing. And the mistake that some make is this. They think because they did this act, they were baptized or had communion or they went to church or, you know, they, they worshiped on a certain day, whatever it might be, because they have done this outward thing that everything is well with them spiritually. And Paul is saying, no way. You're fooling yourself. Because outward expression means nothing if it is not accompanied by an inward validation. Is your heart tender towards the Lord? Your lips speaking with sensitivity, your ears hearing the Lord intimately. The outward expression really means little unless your heart is right. And that is what Paul is declaring. 
If the uncircumcised do the things which are right, then they are counted as circumcised. That would really get the religious pious, the Hebrew who read that, their blood boiling. What do you mean they're considered circumcised? You have been physically circumcised, ritualized. If you're not doing what is right, if your heart is hard, your lips are brutal, your ears are polluted, it doesn't matter. You're uncircumcised. You need to get right with the Lord. And then as we finish this, the chapter, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is the outward in the flesh, but he is Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision of that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So oftentimes when Paul was writing to the Christians in the New Testament, of course, like the Galatian churches and the church of Philippi and others, he warned them about those legalists, the Judaizers coming from Jerusalem, saying to the Gentile believers that, hey, if you want to be righteous before God, it's not only faith in Jesus, but you have to be cut. You have to be circumcised. And Paul would say to the Galatian churches that they are bringing to you another gospel. They pervert the gospel. To the Philippian church, Paul would write in chapter 3, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, and those of the mutilation. In other words, those who are coming along and telling you that you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul says, beware. And then he continues to write that we are of this true circumcision who, number one, worship God in spirit. Second of all, rejoice in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. Who are the ones that are truly saved? Who are the ones that are truly of the circumcision? Those who worship God in spirit. It would be Jesus that would say to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth. He's seeking such to worship him. So Paul defines the true circumcision, one who worships God in spirit, just worshiping and praising God with all of their hearts for what he has done and who he is. Secondly, the true circumcision is those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. And what he has provided for us, salvation and forgiveness and access and relationship with the Father. We're entering into the month of Thanksgiving. And as a Christian, even though we go through difficulties and we go through loss and heartache and trials and difficulties, every day we have something to be thankful for. Amen. And that is our salvation in Jesus Christ. We are not going to go to hell. And every day we can be thankful for that. Because we rejoice in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the true circumcision is one who has no confidence in the flesh. The legalist, the Judaizer could boast in what they had done in the flesh. Look how we've kept the law. We're kosher. We've kept the observances. We've been circumcised. The one today that I've gone to church, I've done these things. I've been baptized. But he, the Lord, is interested in what's in your heart. And that outward action that you do as we come here, whatever it is that we take a communion, it should be a validation of what we have done inwardly, and that has given our hearts over to Jesus Christ. That we are saved by him, and I have no confidence in the flesh. It's not based on what I do. It is based on what my Lord did on Calvary's cross. He is my hope. The cross is what brought salvation and forgiveness of sin. Knowing that Jesus validated what he did on the cross as he rose from the grave. And in a moment, we're going to come right now to the communion table. And as we hold the elements in our hands, it's not just an exercise that we go through. 
It is a time of worship and saying, thank you, Lord, for this new covenant that I belong, a covenant of sacrifice, allowing your body to be broken and, and bloodshed for forgiveness of sin. And it is for the believer. For you who are not a believer, give your heart to Jesus Christ. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Rejoice in your hope and that is Jesus Christ. Come to him. He's calling you. Father, we thank you for his time in your word. And, and I do pray if there's anyone here that may be in the sanctuary or perhaps that is listening, you know, on uh, their computers or smartphones or later on the radio, that you've never come to Jesus Christ. You thought you're a good person. I'm okay. And when I stand before God, I'll be okay. That is not what God's word declares. It declares that we're all sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And none of us are righteous. No, not one. And so Jesus came, the one who lived righteously, the Son of God, and he died for you, that you might have forgiveness of sin. And he's calling you to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For you to recognize your need to be forgiven and to receive his grace. And it's done by as you come by faith, believing that Jesus died for you and I have need to be forgiven and that he's the son of God who's alive. Will you come? Right where you are, sincerely in your heart, pray this. That Jesus, I come to you, a sinner, and I confess that I have sinned, and I ask that you forgive me. I believe you died for my sins on that cross, and you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. And now I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior, that this is now my gospel. Forgive me. And I want to know you and walk with you. I need you, Lord. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for the power of the gospel to save me. Lord, change me from glory to greater glory into the image of Jesus day by day as I, I look to you, learn of you, walk with you. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody here, you prayed that prayer, we're going to finish communion and then we're going to close the service and then there's going to be a prayer team up front. Come up and tell them the decision you made so we can bless you, pray for you. But Christian... Communion is for you. You don't have to belong to the church, but if you're a believer, taking the elements, just coming in a time of worship, thanking the Lord, doing this in remembrance of him as we hold the elements, we'll partake of them together.